so in this afternoon um, sequence, we will be focusing in this first session on really the traditional teachings uh, of how to explore and understand anatta or not self. And we want to balance it with what we were looking at earlier, which was bringing in more of the looking at the varieties of the thick self. So here we'll be especially inviting ways of experiencing in which, we, which, which we're increasingly have a sense of a thinned out sense of self, in which that thick sense of self is no longer present. And this was, I think, the <coughs> core of the teachings related to anatta. You know, and I've integrated those teachings with psychological and social perspectives, which let us look at some of the manifestations of the thick self and understand those. At the same time, as we are looking at the thick self, which was the emphasis in the last section, we also want to be cultivating more of a sense of a thinned out self. Or maybe, maybe we should say an, uh, of a kind of experience in which that, uh, the sense of self gets increasingly <clears throat> thinned out and is less influenced by a sense of self. Again, partly that comes from practicing and continually attending to when the self gets thick, noticing it and sometimes letting go, sometimes saying, I need to attend to this later. <laughs> and, but we also want to invite these experiences or these ways of experiencing that are more like what I was talking about earlier as involving a sense of flow, uh, a sense of experiencing without a thick sense of self. And I was suggesting that these can be um, opened up to in very ordinary experience by looking for that sense of flow, which is very natural and is there in a lot of our activities. Again, if you look carefully, you may be surprised at how much of your ordinary experience is occurring with this sense of flow in, with the, in which there is not much sense of self or a more thinned out sense of self. I was giving those examples of just full engagement with, with a, a given activity which you probably experience in your work in different ways, uh, being with people that you feel very comfortable with where there's not much self-image or self-consciousness or need to defend or attack <clears throat> in creative activities, in music and art, whether you're a musician or artist or listening, where you can just be with that process in <clears throat> certain experiences in the natural world where there's uh, just a kind of connection. Now, in terms of opening up to this thinned out self, we can, or the, the thinned out, the, so the experience thinned of self, we can go to those more ordinary experiences and just appreciate them. And of course, sometimes what we want to do is be in those experiences, be with them fully, and then track for when the thick sense of self appears, or sometimes we say when some fixation appears, or when <coughs> when the sense of flow isn't occurring in the same way, right? When the flow gets stopped, as it were. So I think the metaphor of flow can be very helpful for 
seeing when this is occurring in a very ordinary way. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that, <clears throat> I mean, the suggestion is that we have a lot of very ordinary experiences which are similar to anatta. <clears throat> now also, we can deliberately cultivate the sense of not-self, a thinned-out sense of self <clears throat> in our experience as well, in part through meditation. And the, <clears throat> the traditional kinds of teachings really invite us, and this is both in the teachings of the Buddha and in other uh, Buddhist traditions, actually in other traditions, uh, um, they invite us to look for a way of experiencing that doesn't have a kind of firm and strong sense of self. In the, in the teachings of the Buddha, this sense of a strong sense of self was linked with some of the connotations of that sense of self from his times, which had to do with a certain degree of a certain degree of permanence, independence, and control. And there was a sense that that is how the self is defined, and he was continually inviting people, look at your experience, do you actually find that sense of self? Do you find a sense of self as permanent, independent, and controlling? And he was pointing to actually looking and not being able to find it. So a lot of Buddhist practice, first of all, it's important to see, has this sense, uh, a very strong sense of self, that may not necessarily be our ordinary sense of self. You know, again, psychologists would point to a sense of self which is much more relative, not so independent. You know, might be talked about as a socially constructed sense of self, very dependent on conditions, very dependent on our histories and our personal history. <clears throat> and what's being uh, really criticized or looked at in Buddhist sense is a much stronger sense of self. So it's not necessarily in contradiction with a more relative sense of self, which is what you have, again, in Western psychology, it's pointed to, and it's something like, okay, the sense of self is a sense of continuity, but it's not necessarily independent or permanent. What we want to look for is to what extent we think the self is independent and permanent and controlling. And this is the emphasis more of Buddhist practice. In other words, a more extreme sense of self and looking for that and typically not being able to find it. So a lot of the Buddhist tradition, and this is, um, I think, there in the teachings of the Buddha, it's also quite explicit in some of the Mahayana teachings, particularly what you find in Tibetan teaching, where the, you, you're asked to look for the self and the <clears throat> guidance is that you're not, if you look carefully, you won't find it. So this is sometimes called unfindability analysis, <laughs> that you actually look for the self and don't find it. <clears throat> um, this was done by some of the early psychologists. William James said, <clears throat> when I go to find myself, all that I find is a slight tickle at the back of my throat. This is a sense of self, <clears throat> you know. And we, we are really invited to look for that sense of self and see what it is. And the suggestion is that we can more carefully 
look to the constituents of experience and be with the constituents of experience and see the sense of self as a kind of non-necessary addition to the flow of experience. So some of the guidance on investigating the sense of flow or the sense of anatta is in indicating where you might pay attention and how you might be with experience without that sense of, without that strong sense of self. As we look more carefully at the sense of self, (laughs) one thing that we can, a few things we can notice is that our usual sense of self is dependent on a few factors that um, we can learn to see more carefully. One of them is the sense of the body is very much connected with the sense of self, you know, and a sense of an independent sense of self. And when we look uh, carefully at that, we can see that the, um, the visual sense particularly, and the sense of being a body, tends to contribute to a sense of being a separate, independent self, right? because it looks like there are a bunch of separate independent bodies. And it's interesting to compare how we conceive of self visually with how we approach that sense of self and independence with our other senses. For example, our other senses, which are not so connected with language and our visual sense is more connected with language there's a way in which the visual sense plus language tend to support more than the other senses a sense of a separate self. Right? When you think about it, and you consider some of the other ways that we experience, for example, my father was blind the last, um, about legally blind probably the last uh, 25 years of his life. He didn't encounter the world visually it was quite different, right? And there was much, you know, I don't think he, I mean, he had the previous uh, history of doing that, but I think without the visual side, it's quite different. You're not seeing, you know, you're picking up on people in a different way, through the voice, maybe through physical contact, and there may be less of a sense of that independence, I think. Um, Another thing I was reflecting on was when you think of something like the practice, you know, more the coming through the emotions, 
and the practice of empathy. Um, and what actually we know from the neurosciences is that something like empathy, which is the ability to tune in to other people's emotions, actually suggests that the reality is much more interdependent. That it's more like we exist in this field, in this field of resonance. And we actually know that the um, mirror neurons, my mirror neurons fire when you have certain emotions, when you have certain thoughts and perspectives, and even when your body moves in a certain way. And it's more like there's a sense of dancing in this interdependent field. And when we tune in in that way, it looks more like interdependence. When we tune in visually and also through language, it seems more like there's ind independence and permanence. So it's, it's important when we're looking at, at this to be aware of the power of language and the power of the visual sense. I think, I think the uh, philosopher Wittgenstein once said that the sense of self is actually a grammatical mistake. He said it was sort of an artifact of grammar, you know, and, and it's interesting where, you know, you even look at the language, it's not so clear what we mean by the sense of self. You know, think, you know, we say, you know, uh, <clears throat> I'm sad. So what does that mean? We also say, I have anger. They're kind of like two different metaphors there. One of them is, I am the emotion. And the other one is, I'm the container of my emotions or the possessor of emotions. So we want to be, we want to watch out for language. A lot of the language will tend to make us think that we're more independent. In the English language, other languages are different, right? Some of you know that, uh, I think, I think if I remember correctly, some languages, you know, particularly something like Chinese, is not set up with a subject-object structure, right? Where you have I doing something, you're a, a noun and a verb, right? You have other languages which have more of a sense of a flow or an, a process. So we're conditioned by the English language, we're conditioned by language in general, and we're conditioned by the uh, emphasis on the visual sense. These all are contributing to a sense of self, which is not there in the same way when we tune in differently. So it's interesting, isn't it? You know, like, where does the sense of self come from? Um, <clears throat> so the, um, oh, this, is from, this is from a Hindu teacher, a non-dual teacher named Nisargadatta. He says, <clears throat> All of spiritual practice has only one aim, to save you from the calamity, the calamity of separate existence. <laughs> okay. And so uh, what, we, what we do in our, really the most fundamental practice we do is that we stay with the flow of experience and we're invited to focus on different elements. You know, this is where the teaching of the aggregates or the skandhas comes in, where we are invited to look at experience and increasingly tune in to different experiences coming through. And the idea is that none of them have a sense of self. In fact, we can, and to, to increasingly be with a sense of the flow of experience that is happening, that I am not there independently controlling my experience. 
So to see experience more as a flow and to see the sense of self as a kind of add-on to that flow. Again, with our earlier discussion, we were seeing that often that add-on is very skillful, important, you know, in the context of acting ethically, being responsible, taking, you know, uh, taking certain actions. But we're also invited to see where we can go beyond that sense of self. And that's what this, the more meditative training is about. Can I be with the elements of experience and notice where a sense of self arises? And that's, and that's our training. And again, the model of the skandhas or the khandhas in Pali, the model of the aggregates or the sort of the uh, different uh, aspects of experience was probably the primary vehicle that the Buddha used to teach this. That he's saying, okay, look at experience. You might think that it's, I'm experiencing this, but can you look at it? Now there is, and he went through five different dimensions, now there is the aspect of form developing. I feel body sensations, you know. I have my eyes and I see a form. Can I be with the element of form, which is going to manifest through sensation, through uh, visual objects, through, uh, you know, hearing something and so forth. Can I be with that sense of form? Then can I be the second one he, he named, he named five elements, and I think and from my perspective these are, these are important elements, but he could have framed it, you know, in other ways, a little bit, in my perspective, arbitrary just to name these five and not others. But he said, can you look at the sense of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. The feeling tone, the Vedana, can I look at that and notice, oh, there's, <clears throat> there's a sensation in my knee. Oh, I notice unpleasant developing from it. Normally I might say, my knee is hurting and I might have a sense of self. Can I rather just be with that flow, notice sensation, notice unpleasant, and then may maybe noticing the idea I like it or I don't like it appearing, right? And that would fit under actually the fourth of the, uh, the fourth of the aspects. The third aspect is perception. Can I notice myself perceiving a certain object <clears throat> and interpreting in a certain way? Perception is based on memory. You know, so can I notice, uh, can I notice uh, when I have my eyes open, I notice the table or I notice this where I have my eyes closed and I notice, uh, you know, maybe I call it a throbbing, you know, and I give it a, or I call it pain. I notice a certain, and I give it a label. I have a certain inner perception or outer perception. And the fourth would be called uh, mental formations, which is sort of a grab bag that we would include thoughts and emotions and so forth. Can I notice thoughts and emotions coming through? And the last was, can I notice uh, consciousness, that there is an aspect of being aware? And his invitation was, I think, to be with the flow of experience, trying to be just with, as it were, the raw ingredients of experience without adding on. And then, of course, from our earlier practice, in the last session, we would notice where do I actually add on, have a sense of self, grasping, reactivity, <clears throat> self-image, start thinking, and so forth, but the invitation is to keep coming back to the flow. So can you see this as a kind of a meditative way to be with that flow experience? 
It's also a little more involves the quality of mindfulness of actually tracking. The kind of flow experiences we were talking about earlier may not involve much mindfulness. I'm just totally in the flow, right? You know, as a, you know, as an artist, I'm just being fully with the process. I have almost zero sense of self, but I also don't necessarily have mindfulness and probably is not necessarily a good thing to have mindfulness in that process. So here, we're doing it a little bit differently. We're with the process of the flow, but it's like I'm tracking what's going on with my mindfulness. At a later stage of meditative development, <coughs> I would actually drop that tracking. Because interestingly, <coughs> this relates to what I was talking about earlier, here we're tracking the phenomena. We're tracking, oh, there's sensation. Oh, there's a thought. Oh, there's sadness. Oh, there's sensation. Maybe we say sensation in my right shoulder. And I'm tracking it. And that's a very important type of practice. You might notice that it actually involves what I called earlier a meditative self. <laughs> and there's the meditative self who says, okay, do this. Oh, there's that happening. Oh, you're distracted. Come back. Right? That's, that's a very important tracker. It's a subtle kind of self that we set up for the purposes of practice. Interesting, isn't it? We set up a kind of meditative self. You can't do practice very well without it. Eventually, we're going to dissolve that meditative se sense of self to go more deeply. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, we set up a meditative sense of self, and, you know, that meditative self might wonder, how am I doing? <clears throat> am I progressing? Oh, Donald stopped daydreaming, you know, right? And, and very useful. Again, it's, it's that, like that Tanisara Bhikkhu quote, when is the self useful? When is it not useful? When is it skillful? When is it not skillful? So very skillful to set up a meditative self that tracks and tries to just open to this flow of experience. Later, we'll, in later stages of practice, as we deepen, we want to invite that meditative self to dissolve so there's, that, there's no longer that subject-object split. That's more advanced kinds of practice, but where we open to a kind of subjectless, objectless knowing, where we don't have the self-other divide. That's, I think, that's a deeper level of practice, okay? But on the way, we set up a meditative self that knows these aspects of experience, that knows the skandhas very fundamental part of practice, particularly, again, what the Buddha was pointing to, he was saying, when you do that, do you find any self there? You know, or do you find it only as an add-on? Can you be with the flow without a sense of self? <clears throat> and the idea is that you don't find that independent, permanent, controlling self. He also often says, if you had that kind of self, you could actually control experience more. Again, I think that was the sense of self that was there in the cultural context. But it's also related to our sense of this sense of in independence and permanence, right? That we have, that's very much part of our kind of inborn sense of self. <clears throat> and of course, it's interesting that uh, both Western, some Western philosophers and uh, lately psychologists have come to a very similar conclusion. You know, in the, in the Western philosophical tradition, you have some of you may remember reading, anyone read David Hume? Very similar. 
he says, I look everywhere in my experience for a self and I don't find it. Very similar, you know, this what I was calling unfindability practice or unfindability analysis that you don't find that sense of self. You find that in one of the Western philosophical traditions uh, that we call the, the empiricist tradition. And then you also, lately, more lately, <coughs> in Western psychology and in the neurosciences, they say there is no location of the sense of self anywhere in the whole system. It's not, you know, some people thought it was in like the pineal gland or something. <laughs> you know, so where is the self? Well, the contemporary psychologist said, it can't be located anywhere. What do you make of that? I'm sorry if that's disturbing to anyone. <laughs> you know, and, and it actually, you know, this is, um, again, maybe to reiterate something I was saying earlier, that when we're doing this practice, exploring the nature of the self, it's really important to combine it with uh, compassion and the metta practice. Because you know, I've been using some humor, but actually this can be, can be a little disorienting at times to go into this and not find a self. And where am I? You know, and you know, the sense of self that I thought I had, I may not have in the same way. And so I think to hold this all with some compassion and to do, if you're doing, like maybe following up with Leslie, as we were talking about, have a regular heart practice, like compassion or metta, to continue. Because it's, you know, it can be, it can be challenging, you know. I heard a story of a, a young man <coughs> who was told at a retreat by the teacher, you know, he, the teacher said, there is no, there is no self. Again, which I, <coughs> I, I've said, that, that's a, not a good translation. And that would be one-sided, but nonetheless he said it. There was a 20-year-old man there who was in school, <coughs> and he was very affected by this teaching. He was, he basically had a strong reaction. He left the retreat. He later left school, and he said, if there's no self, what's the point of going to school? You know, and I don't know what happened, but that he was he was disoriented, right? You know, and so it's, this is when we actually look deeply at this, it's um, it can be challenging territory, right? Because we've lived with this uh, sense of independent self and a sense of self that may be more than what we actually find when we look carefully. So just to say that that go at your own pace. And and hold this all hold this all with compassion, you know. And you know, I, uh, we're not going to do so much of the metta, loving kindness, or heart practices, but those are also wonderf wonderful vehicles to explore the sense of not self. You know, I've actually been teaching a lot lately on empathy. You know, and uh, actually, I was teaching a lot on empathy in relation to the election. You know, I found it a very good re reference point. And <clears throat> I gave, I gave uh, one talk in, you know, when I was, after the election, I, I mentioned I was in Kentucky. I gave a talk on empathy and made some connection to, to the election because there were, there were failures of empathy there, right? On, you know, maybe more on one candidate's approach, but in the other major candidate's approach as well. You remember that basket of deplorables? Remember that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
And so, but what I found in um, <coughs> empathy practice, which is basically a practice of tuning in, particularly to another person and to the emotions and to the sense of what matters, it's a very powerful uh, practice of interdependence. When you do that a lot, you really have a sense of being in the same field, you know, which is the field that, again, the neuroscientists tell us is the field of limbic resonance, which is actually, which again, if you were an artist, and you, as some artists do, and you were trying to pre present our true condition, you might, might not present it with distinct figure here, distinct figure here. You might have much more of a sense of a field. And there is individuality, but it might be much more in an interdependent field. That might be actually a more accurate way of looking at our reality. You know, and some artists actually try to do this and have this breakdown of ordinary objects. You, some of you maybe have studied the Expressionists, right, from the French Expressionists. They're very interested in these kind of issues. They're very interested in, you know, the, the very formal painting of its time. Everything was distinct. And they said, that's not really what we find when we look carefully at experience. You know, think of Van Gogh, or think of Cezanne, where, where things are not so distinct, when there's more like this field of all these points of uh, color and, and sensation, right? And they had, I think, more of a sense of a field. And I, th I think if we, again, we're, we get confused by language and by the visual sense, and in some of, the, some of the depths of meditative experience, everything is more like this pulsing energetic field. Right? Some of you have experienced that at times, right? And it's different than the way we are more conventionally. So, that being said, <laughs> that being said, let's do, um, let, me, let me just ask you, any questions of clarification? Uh, Jayla. Um. <coughs> Yeah. So, like the way you instructed us over lunch to notice flow. Yeah. Is is there, um, like, if I keep doing that practice, which I would like to, is there, should there be a mindfulness component with that? Or yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. I think you can can do it in a few different ways. One of them would be to use mindfulness and labeling in our in our usual way of doing insight practice, mm -hmm. <coughs> and to to track what's going on and and to track when something like a self, a thick self, appears, okay? That's one way to do it, and that's, you know, I'm going to invite something like that in a moment. We'll do, we'll do, we'll practice together. It's possible then, at a certain point, if you're pretty stable with that, maybe you let go of the uh, labeling, mm -hmm. and you just open to the flow of the experience. Um, Sometimes that can be when the mind is quiet and you have a, uh, you have a kind of, you're with the flow of what we sometimes call choiceless awareness. Okay. And you're with that flow and that's when the mind is relatively quiet. And that can be, uh, but there's still tracking, you're, but you're not yeah. labeling. There's still a knower and a known. Mm -hmm. And then when that gets very stable, that can be a segue. You let go of the knower and you're just, the phenomena are just occurring within more like a field of awareness. Mm -hmm. And you're opening to more of what I was calling a subjectless, objectless knowing. Mm -hmm. You know, which is, again, is pointed to as some of the more advanced aspects of practice and 
and some of the teachers of lineage and, and the teachings of the Buddha. <coughs> Thank you. Yeah, so, so we kind of play with what I was calling the meditative self. At one point, the med meditative self is responsible for tracking and coming back from being away, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we establish that. We have a meditative self. It's a construction. <coughs> it's very helpful, very skillful at a certain point. And then we, we gradually thin out the meditative self. You can almost say that I, I named like three stages. The first stage, we're with the experience, we're using labels, we're mostly with the direct experience. Second stage, <coughs> we let go of the labels when the mind's more quiet. We're just with the flow of experience. Sometimes it's happening at a, um, beneath the level of concepts. You know, things are just occurring. And we notice again when there's some kind of sense of self, but things can be occurring more quickly and more automatically, right? And there can be a sense of almost like a choiceless awareness of things just flowing. It's almost like we're, we're watching a river in front of us and things are just coming down the river and I'm just with what's there. I still have a distinction between knower and known, so there's still tracking, there's still a meditative self. And then at a third stage, I let go of that meditative tracker. That's a more advanced stage. It takes a lot of this, you know, pretty settled mind and con good concentration. I let go of that distinction, and it's more like there's a field of awareness and phenomena are occurring in that field. But I don't have a sense of separateness. I don't have a sense of the meditative self-tracking. You're just a part of that meditative field? Yeah, it's just field. a field. We, can, we, we use different metaphors to describe it, but it's more like a field that is subjectless and objectless. Mm -hmm. right? So that's, that's one way of talking about the progression mm -hmm. that we would go through in meditation mm -hmm. as we deepen the sense of anatta, mm -hmm. right? that kind of sequence. So the first, the first part, <coughs> and we can't, can't rush it, <laughs> sometimes, some of the, sometimes the second and third phase occur best in retreats, initially at least. Yeah. Okay? But at least as a model, does that make sense? And how many can relate to that model in terms of experiencing the first and second, maybe the third? Okay? Yeah. Okay, very good. <coughs> and the